Oh boy, if you have your Bibles, go ahead, open them up to the book of Acts. Been in Acts now for a little while, and we are 12 chapters deep. We've been looking at Peter and all the things around Peter and his ministry. We are now several years beyond Jesus in the resurrection. The church has grown and it has spread. And now in Acts chapter 12, we're going to see more persecution. Now, one of the things that we keep seeing throughout the book of Acts, and this is one of those principles, and it's around today, you see the persecution of the church, and what happens? The hammer comes down, and then the church seems like it scatters, but every time it scatters or every time it's persecuted, what happens? It grows, and it multiplies, and it becomes stronger. In today's world, it's like that. You go to some of the most persecuted places in the world, some of those places aren't growing in leaps and bounds. I was reading a book, The Insanity of God. We watched the documentary one Sunday night several years ago. And there was a missionary that was in Africa in one of the heavily run-down countries that were just being decimated by the the radicalists and all that kind of stuff. And he was there under the guise of UNICEF in like an international aid thing. And in his deck, he had made one convert. Years and years in ministry created one convert. That's rough, but that was his mission field. Other Christians were getting slaughtered from there. You look at China, they try to snuff it out, but what happens? They arrest Christians and they put them in prison. And what happens there? It spreads throughout the prisons. In China, if you're a pastor, people want to know, when did you go to prison and how long were you there for? That's like seminary for them. Persecution is so heavy that you go to prison and you come out with the equivalent of a seminary degree. Isn't that crazy? There's other places like Iran where Christianity is growing. It's not growing nearly as fast as it is in other places, but it's still growing. People don't talk about it because they can lose their lives for it. So where there's persecution, In Christianity, it tends to grow. Not always, but it tends to. And we've seen that throughout the book of Acts. Well, now the persecution is going to become even more severe for some of these folks. The church in Jerusalem is growing, and it's Jewish people there becoming converted. And the head of the church in Jerusalem is a guy by the name of James. Now, there's multiple James in the Bible that are referred to in the Bible. This James is the brother of John James. This is one of the inner three. It was Peter, James, and John. This is that James. And that James was the leader of the church. Jerusalem. Ground zero of Christianity. We're going to pick up 12.1. It says, Now about that time, Herod, the king stretched out his hand to harass some of the church. Then he killed James, 
the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him to before the people after Passover. Let's stop right there. This chapter is started. Now Luke, the author of the book of Acts, he is starting this thing out by framing it. If you're an author, you frame it. You show where the story's taking place. The beginning of the framing is here's James, brother of John, leader of the church, dead. Mm. If you are a disciple and you're in Jerusalem and James is put to death publicly by the sword, you shouldn't be real excited about the prospect of your future in Christianity. That's what it was done for. It was a terroristic event that took place. Just like ISIS was beheading Christians and putting it on the internet, Herod, and this isn't the same Herod that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby, this is actually that Herod's grandson. Herod was kind of like the term of governor or king over Israel or Judea. So this Herod is Herod Agrippa, grandson of the one that tried to kill Jesus, nephew of the one that beheaded John the Baptist. That Herod says, man, this is going to create some political points for me if I go after Peter now because they loved when I killed James. So the story is unfolding. And we see that James is killed right off the bat in chapter 12. Peter knows this, and they send for Peter. They send four squads. You know how many's in a squad? I'll be impressed if you do. Four. Sixteen soldiers are coming in to arrest Peter. Sixteen for one guy. Now, Peter's a bad dude. He chopped off old Malchus's ear when they were trying to arrest Jesus. But mm, it's going to be different. Here's verse 5. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping bound with two chains between two soldiers and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Peter gets arrested. The big hit squad of 16 guys comes out. They handcuff him. They shackle him. They shame walk him to the prison. They put him in the prison. But Herod's like, ah, we don't want to kill him during the Passover feast. People will think that's tacky. Can't have blood on my hands during the big religious feast. So what we're going to do is we're going to wait until Passover is done. Passover is passed over. And then we're going to kill Peter just like we killed James. And everybody's going to love it. They're all going to love me. It's going to help me out with the people. But God doesn't have those plans for Peter. Do you remember on the beach when there's Peter and John was on the beach and Jesus was there, it's post-resurrection, and they're walking down the beach and Jesus hits Peter with the, Peter, do you love me? Asks him three times. 
This is at the end of John. He says, one day you're going to grow old and someone's going to lead you by the hand and they're going to put you to death. Peter wasn't old yet, was he? Not really the old man. So Jesus would have said, hey Peter, in just a little while you're going to be executed and killed. Jesus could have said that, but he didn't. He said, one day, when you're older. So now, Peter is arrested. He is chained to two soldiers. How many of y'all like when you're in bed, you're laying there, and your husband, your wife, whatever, they roll over and their hand touches you? Anybody like that? How many people hate when someone touches them while they're sleeping? Any of those? Yeah, I live with one. So badly that we have two twin beds in our room. Now I'm just kidding. <laughs> Peter is chained, handcuffed, if you will, to two soldiers in a dungeon cell. And at the gate of that dungeon cell are the other two soldiers in that squad. So there's two guys chained to him, metal bracelets, anklets, whatever it is, and then there's two guys outside the door. And Peter's there sleeping. So we know it's right around April-ish, because it's right around Passover, maybe the end of March. Depends on where Easter fell that year, right? Peter is there in the cool of the night in this dungeon with these guys attached to him. Now we're going to see the miracle that takes place. Verse 7. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So we went out and he followed him and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street. And immediately the angel departed from him. All right, let's stop right there. Are you seeing this in your mind? Is this not awesome? This is like SEAL Team 6 angel guy coming in, Busting Peter out of jail. Under the cover of darkness, total stealth. It brings me back to my childhood when I was playing video games. And you had like these sneaky little stealth missions and you couldn't be seen. And you'd be hiding in the shadows. Except you're breaking Peter loose. This angel shows up and it's this bright light. Now let me tell you what. Peter isn't awake Peter knows that tomorrow's the day that he's probably going to die. How many of y'all would be sleeping? And not just sleeping, sleeping soundly. This is a guy that you cannot wake up because here's this bright light shining. That doesn't wake him up. The angel had to do what? Strike him, pow, on the side. Not just like bump them. Excuse me. Peter. 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 
You know, there's other translations that say he said Peter 26 times before he finally struck him. But he had to hit Peter to wake him up. That's how soundly Peter was sleeping. Let me tell you this. Did Peter believe Jesus on the beach that day when he said, you're going to be old one day and someone's going to lead you by the hand where you do not want to go? Yeah. Because Peter is so confident in the words of Jesus and how he would go that this ain't much of a concern to him. He is sound asleep. The angel can't wake him up. Now there's a few points I want to bring out here. Here's a little sermon inside of a sermon. The first thing that the angel has to do is tell Peter to get up. Get up. Arise quickly. Some of you have been sleeping inside of a cell chained to the circumstances of your life that is not allowing you to go out and be who God called you to be. Do what you want with that. I don't know what that circumstance is in your life. I don't know how it's affecting you. But there are some of you who feel like you are chained down to the circumstances of life. Let me tell you this. God is bigger than those circumstances. God is beyond those circumstances. God is in control of those circumstances. First thing he says, get up. But he's got to wake you up first. Some of y'all still sleeping, snoozing, snoozing soundly, resting in your blessed assurance, right? Hoping that one day you're just going to wake up and see Jesus and he's going to be like, well done, my good and faithful servant. But the fact of the matter is, there's a mission that you are to be on right now. And the circumstances don't define that mission. He's waiting to set you free from whatever you're bound to. Hmm. What are you bound to in your life? Is there anything in your life that is keeping you from the fullness of life that God wants you to be in? Only you can wrestle with that one. Whatever they are, you got to get rid of them. Whatever they are, you got to find some people that you can confide in and have them pray for you. You need to just bow up and say goodbye to those things in some cases. In some cases, you just need to say, I'm not going to do that anymore. And you've got to have the backbone to say no and then go. Get up. Get ready. He says, get your clothes on. Gird up. Now, what do you get dressed in? We are to put on Christ. As believers, the Bible teaches us throughout the epistles, put on Christ. What's it mean to put on Christ? It means clothe yourself in Him. Robe yourself in Him, in His goodness, in His grace, in His mercy, in the discipline that comes there. You can have that discipline in your life to follow Him wherever He leads you. Put on Christ. Are you in Him? Are you resting in Him? And then he says, follow me. Get behind me. Get up, get ready, get clothed, get behind me. And some of you would do well to take that to heart, to follow it out in your life and see where he's going to lead you when you let him lead you. 
But the problem is, sometimes we don't even know that He's trying to lead us somewhere. And what do we do? We just, oh, look what God's doing. <laughs> what happens when God breaks you out of the chains that have been binding you for however long it's been, and He says, you're free, you're in me, now follow me. Amazing things happen. We have the first automatic garage door opener in one of these verses. They get to the gate. They go past two outposts. Nobody notices. Here is the most wanted man in the city, public enemy number one, waiting to get his head chopped off the next day. <laughs> and he's just walking through the prison, looking at the guard towers, right? Who's in the guard towers nowadays? It's a guy with the high-powered sniper rifle, right? Ready to take you down. Back in those days, it was probably a bow and arrow or a crossbow or something. Anyway, I digress. Walks right on past those things. And Peter doesn't even know it's really happening. Thinks it's a vision. Goes past the first outpost. Goes past the second outpost. See some soldiers over here. Couple soldiers over here nodding off sleeping. Gets to the gate. Shuts behind him. He goes out in, I don't know if it shut behind him, goes out into the streets with the angel. And now he's finally waking up and he's like, wow, this is really happening. This is for real. And they go down a street together and then the angel leaves him. And Peter's thinking, man, this is crazy. So what does Peter do? Peter realizes I am the most wanted man in the region, and I'm now walking on the streets all by myself. i got to find somewhere to go. So what's he do? Mm. Verse 11. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from the expectation of all the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. This is the guy who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Shows up at Mark's mama's house, where many were gathered and praying. Hey, we've gone to Mark's house a dozen times, right? Where Mark grew up as a kid. I remember Mrs. John Mark. I'm going to show up. She's going to take care of me like she used to when we were kids. Shows up. What were they doing there? Praying. Dude, I get chills thinking about this. So now, Peter, when all this stuff started, in verse 5 it says, but constant prayer was offered for Peter by the believers. Here they are at John Mark's mama's house having a prayer meeting for Peter. Y'all, you can't write this any better. He shows up at the house, middle of the night. They are praying constantly for him. When's the last time you've been part of a constantly type of prayer meeting? Probably never. When's the last time you got with a group of people and nothing else was done for an hour and a half except for pray? 
An hour and a half is a long time, preacher. How about 10 minutes? I've been in one of those. 15 minutes? Yeah, maybe. An hour. Yeah, we go to the courthouse and we empty out the courthouse and we have a bunch of folks in there and that's the day of prayer and that lasts roughly about an hour. Constantly they were praying. Around the clock, they're praying for Peter. Peter is now miraculously, chains falling off him, doors opening up, sneaking past guards, walking down the street, and now he's at this house. He knocks on the door, verse 13, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda, which means Rose, came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, like any good Christian who's just spent the last four days praying for somebody, you are beside yourself. Tony Campanelli version of that says, girl, you're crazy. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it's his angel. Maybe he's already dead. Maybe it's an angel that came because we're praying for him. You could have a theological debate right there in that house amongst those people over that. And verse 16 says, Now Peter continued knocking, because you got to think, Peter's out there going, uh, Y'all, the alarms are going to sound at the prison, and here I am standing out on the street, boom, 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 at midnight. Somebody come open the door. Verse 16 Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, go tell these things to James. Oh, doesn't that create a problem? Where's James right now? Dead. Peter knew that. He's talking about the other James, son of Alphaeus, not the brother of John. Go tell James and the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. And as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. So they are praying for Peter constantly. He's in jail. Peter wakes up one night. When the angel tries to get him, who's praying at that time when the chains are falling off his hand? Who's praying? The church. The church is praying and Peter is getting set free. The church is praying and Peter is getting dressed. The church is praying and Peter's walking out of his cell looking at sleeping soldiers all around him. The church is praying, and Peter's walking past the guard post. The church is praying, and the door is opening. The church is praying, and he's walking down the street having the realization that this is really happening. And all the time, he's walking down the street, he's beating on the door, and the church is praying for him. Little girl comes to the door, says it's Peter, and what do they say? Nah, you're crazy. I said it a couple weeks ago. When there's little prayer, there's little power. But when there's lots of prayer, there's lots 
of power. Here's a church that's been praying a lot and we're seeing lots of stuff take place. Lots of God's power and providence just paving the way for Peter. But do they believe it? Or are they just going through the motions? Seems like they're just going through the motions. Have you ever prayed and just gone through the motions and you're just like, Lord, if it's your will. Or when you pray, do you pray like you know it's going to happen because it's God's will that it's going to happen? How do you know it's going to be God's will? Because you are doing it for His glory. And when you pray for His glory, guess what happens? You start seeing the chains drop. You start seeing the doors open. And things start to change. Mm. So, we get to this funny thing. This funny question starts to form in the... So Peter has people praying for him and he walks out of prison alive. Does that mean that those folks in that church prayed harder for Peter than they did for James? Because let's face it, who's the big winner out of James and Peter? Who's the winner and who's the loser? Is Peter the winner? Is he? Why? Because what Paul said in Galatians, to live is what? Christ. And to die is gain. According to the kingdom logic, James is the winner. Because you know what? We are all going to die, last I checked. And to quote a guy who I don't know if I'd call him a wise man, but every day there are people dying who have never died before. Every single day there are folks dying. And if you're in Christ, you're the winner. You get the victory. You get to be with Jesus sooner. Think about James. James, Peter, John, that inner three. One day they're all going to be in heaven and James is going to be like, I beat y'all. I was here first. Everybody's like, yeah, but James died this horrific death. Let me tell you a little story. Peter does too. Peter dies death by crucifixion upside down. James died in a matter of seconds. Peter's going to have an excruciating death that's going to last hours if not days. Is our comfort all that matters? Is that what makes a winner and a loser? When it comes to the big picture? To live is Christ and to die is gain. And will God get the glory? God is still God and He's still good and He's still glorious even though James died by the sword of Herod that day. And God is just as good and just as glorious and just as worthy when Peter has the shackles break off and he gets to live for another 40 years. Remember that. It's not 
your perspective on how events are shaking out. It's all in his hand and it's all in his perspective, in his providence. Take what you will with that. Apply it to your life. Look into your soul and say, are there areas in my life that I've been questioning and worrying about God and worrying about what's happened in my own life because of the circumstances that I'm faced with and God, why are you doing this to me? And look at it from his perspective. I'm going to close out with one more thing. Anytime you're struggling with that whole idea of why do bad things happen to what? Good people. Because isn't that what we always hear? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why did that have to happen to James? Go back and think of this. Why do great and wonderful things happen to miserable, wicked people? What? That doesn't solve it. I was a wicked and miserable person that hated God, that shook my fist in the face of God and my finger. And God was merciful and good and showed me so much grace and gave me another day to hate Him and another day to hate Him until eventually I came to the point where I knew Jesus was my Savior and He was the Lord of all creation. And I bent the knee and I bowed the knee and I said, yes, Jesus, it's you and only you that I want. He gave me a wicked person another day. And then we can think, why did God give the only perfect one of us, the only perfect person, absolute hell? Jesus, the only perfect one that ever lived as our representative of humanity, took that cross and God poured out all of His fury on Him. The only good one, the only one who actually didn't deserve what he got he poured all that out on Jesus crushed his own son so that we could have a right relationship with God the Father and be called children of God